Hi, friends. Welcome to another episode of That Sounds Fun. I'm your host, Annie F. Downs. I'm so glad to be here with you today. I hope you're having a great day. The music in the background is our good buddy, Mr. Dave Barnes. Make sure you grab his new album, any of the albums, really, and come and join us at the Ryman on August 3rd. There are just like barely tickets left, but if you can get to Nashville, come on. Hey, today on the show is someone that I just love and respect so, so much. Someone that Jeremy Courtney is a friend of mine that I have watched lead and um, love people really well and serve in what would be considered some really hard places. And he just teaches me all the time. He teaches me all the time in friendship and in how he leads preemptive love about what it looks to really love well. And so I have been dying to have him on the show. And so we finally worked it out. We finally got it scheduled. So today we have Jeremy Courtney from Preemptive Love, and I think you're just going to really enjoy this conversation. There's a couple of places where there's a little bit of delay that you may hear, but to be fair, he's in Syria, right? So uh, we do the best we can to keep it tight, but there are a couple of spots where, you know, my voice had to go across the globe to the Middle East and then come back to his voice. So without any further delay, here is my conversation with the founder of Preemptive Love, my dear friend, Mr. Jeremy Courtney. Hi, buddy. So your internet's working-ish? I mean, I can hear you. It sounds like you can hear me. Yeah. Jeremy Courtney, you're in Syria? I'm in Syria. What time is it there? 10.20. Okay, p.m. It's 2.20 here in Nashville. That's right. Yeah, you're just staying up because I'm forcing you to do a podcast when you should be sleeping. Sorry, pal. No, this is... This is uh, my normal rhythm. I was about to say, what does your normal day look like? I mean, I guess because you have to stay up a little bit late because of the whole, the U.S. time zones. Because you, I mean, especially if you're dealing with West Coast. So what does your normal rhythm look like? Uh, yeah, I typically work two shifts, basically. So I, I work kind of the day shift on the ground in Iraq and Syria and stuff like that. And then once the U.S. team starts waking up, I kind of shift to more of a U.S. operations, checking in with team and, you know, partners, donors, supporter, community churches, all that kind of stuff around the U.S. as well. When do you get to sleep, buddy? Oh, I go to sleep around 2 a.m. most nights, and that works for me. Oh, my gosh. What time do you wake up? Do you get up early or do you let yourself sleep later? Uh, I'm kind of a 7, 8 o'clock person okay. most of the time. Wow, Jeremy. Wow, wow, wow. That's not a lot of sleep, my friend. What about you? You a long, long sleeper early I'm, to bed? I guess I'm a little bit, yeah, yeah, I'm a little bit earlier. I, but I get up at six, but I'm usually in my bed but around 11, so seven or eight hours, I guess. I like sleep, my friend. Well, I am older than you, so. <laughs> and I'm not doing near as important stuff on this planet as you are, so that is also why the Lord's like, yeah, she can sleep. <laughs> I don't need her as much as I need him, so I'll let her sleep. <laughs> oh, please. Tell me what you're doing in Syria. Uh, yeah, so we're here just uh, checking in on the work. And um, it's, according to many people, it's a bit of a miracle that we're here yeah. as Americans. It has been extremely difficult by almost everyone's account that I've talked to for Americans to get visas. Um, so, you know, we got our team here and they're trucking along and doing the work and they're well-trained and smart and amazing, but I don't get to be here very often to actually see it all and participate in it as an American, just because access and visas and things like that have been so restricted and difficult to come by. But we're here. We got a got a visa and 
we're we're here just traveling the country and checking in on all the amazing work that we get to be a part of. Yeah. So, you know, I'm a huge fan of preemptive love. I'm a monthly donor. I'm a big, I mean, I really believe in what you're doing. Can you kind of explain though, like for people that aren't already friends with you that don't already follow preemptive love, like what is it that y'all do when you say you're with the team doing the work all day? What is it you're doing? Yeah. So we like to think of ourselves as uh, a group of peacemakers, a community of peacemakers, which is a really weird nebulous word that makes some people uncomfortable, but Others might describe us as a humanitarian organization. People often see us as doing like front lines, emergency relief when the like bombs are still falling and snipers are sniping. We are often there on the front lines. People are running away from the conflict. We're running into conflict zones yeah. of groups like ISIS and things like that. Um, trying to get help to people who are either on the run for their lives or kind of stuck and staying behind. But we've come to think of our work as not just that like fast response group of people, but we also want to be people who leave a lasting impact, not just one-time handouts, but like uh, development and helping people get back on their own two feet after conflict and after war. So we have come to describe ourselves as a group of people who's trying to be first in and last to leave in the sense that we want to be fast on the scene because it's a race against the clock when bombs are falling and people are starving. Uh, But we want to stick around and make a lasting impact as well and help people get back to stability and flourishing. Tell me how you and your wife, Jessica, uh, like back me up a little bit and tell me why you do this. Like, why did you move to Iraq? And what is it about this work that you have, I mean, you've given your whole life to it. What is it about this work? You know, it's been a lot like the frog boiling in the water (laughs) right? over time, you know. Uh, I point back to September 11th and the terrorist attacks on America, September 11th, 2001. We had just graduated from college. We had just gotten married and we were we were just perfectly or terribly positioned at that time in our life to, to make a different kind of response to September 11th than people who were just a little bit older than us uh, and people who were just a little bit younger than us. If you were a little bit younger than us, you were still in college or high school or, you know, whatever. And you did not really know a world that was not marred by the terrorist attacks on September 11th. If you were a little bit older than us, you were probably already pregnant, already had one child, Mm -hmm. mired in debt, mortgage. And we just landed at that exact moment in young adulthood where this cataclysmic moment happened and we wanted to respond. And we were relatively unencumbered not not yet pregnant, early married, idealistic, fresh out of school, living in an apartment, not a mortgaged house. And and so we just raised our hand in the wake of 9-11 and said, where do we sign up? We want to be somehow a part of addressing whatever this geopolitical thing is that's playing out right now in the world scene. And so we ended up moving into the Middle East uh, in a sort of like... Um, like the kiddie pool of conflict yeah. in a lot of ways. Uh, just trying to figure out what does it mean to live 
among Muslims who are allegedly our great enemy in the world and want to kill us and blow up our country and they hate our way of life. And wading into that kiddie pool and then realizing, oh, this is a much more complex story than we realized. It's not right. that simple. It's, right. <laughs> it's, it's not nearly as black and white as maybe we were led to believe it was. And then kind of just graduating, going deeper and deeper and deeper into the pool. So we ended up moving into Iraq mm-hmm. or Iraq, as you probably I would do. say. I do. I know. You've uh, taught me. I'm doing it better because <laughs> you've taught me. So we moved into Iraq shortly after that war has set off. And, uh, you know, it, I think even at that time, it felt like we probably thought we were moving into the most horrific war zone on the planet. Yeah. Was your families freaking out? Did they think you were crazy? You know, I think they freaked out more about the first move into the first kiddie pool when we like crossed that Muslim threshold for the very first time. Okay, Sure. That was that that first threshold was scarier for them probably than moving to Iraq. And got it. Once once they had gotten to know some Muslims for themselves, once they had come walked our streets and met our neighbors and realized for themselves that the story was more complex than they mm-hmm. realized. Mm-hmm. The move into Iraq, I think, was somewhat inevitable in their mind. Okay. The big ideological stereotypical balloons had already burst. And and I think Iraq was a little easier for them. But looking back now, I realize, you know, our first days in Iraq, our first years in Iraq were sort of the Iraq kiddie pool. (laughs) The the war, the kiddie pool war. And over the subsequent years, you know, we've just been drawn deeper and deeper into the the conflict and the deep end and the scary stuff. And uh, we didn't, we didn't start where we are today, I guess is the the sum of it all. And when you moved there, did you like go, okay, I'm going to create preemptive love? No, not at all. I mean, we moved in initially to be a part of someone else's organization, kind of someone else's vision, someone else's thing. And I tried my best to be a good boy and fit inside that system. <laughs> and This is why I love you, Jeremy Courtney. I had ideas that, you know, weren't, weren't going to comport fully to what they were trying to do. And you know, now that I'm a leader, now that I've got, you know, my name on the line and my thing on the line and whatever, I certainly understand it better than I did at that time. But uh, I felt pretty out of sorts and out of place early on. And I thought they were small minded and thought they they didn't know what was up, even though I'd only been there a minute at that point. And, um, you know, a convergence of things, my own inability to fit into someone else's system, my own ego. And some very real needs and some very real, I think, good ideas that I brought to the table that they weren't really able to metabolize and incorporate kind of created the perfect storm of entrepreneurial angst, you know, and energy. And it was just time for me to, to launch out and try my own thing. Yeah. Can I ask you, do you know what your Enneagram number is? Eight. Are you an eight? Oh, I love that. Yeah. That makes sense. What's Jess? Two. A two. That's so sweet. Do you love that? I mean, I bet having a two as your sidekick is really helpful. Well, when I'm healthy, it's amazingly helpful. When I'm not healthy, which I definitely have not been over the years of this, it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's a. Di- it can be a very difficult combination. It's really. What does it look like if? Both, yeah, tell me. Well, I think Ian in his book says he used a fire metaphor that just so perfectly helped me understand myself in a way that I probably never had before. But I, 
I was just coming out of Mosul when I read his book. I'd had a massive catastrophic breakdown, maybe one of my worst moments in life in the midst of this war and pain and trauma. And I exploded. I just like emotionally and verbally and in a very horrible way, just exploded in the midst of all this. And I came home and I was just kind of grappling with what I had done and who I was becoming in the midst of this conflict and my own trauma and pain. And I was reading his book one weekend, just trying to understand what was going on in my heart. And he said something about AIDS being like this fire who can attract people to themselves and light the way and provide warmth and winter and, you know, fuel for the journey, you know, all, all these great, beautiful fire metaphors. But if you're not careful, if you're unhealthy, you can jump the hearth of your own fire pit mm. and burn entire cities to the ground. Oh, wow. And that's me. I mean, at my best, I can, I can do all those positive things. And at my worst, you know, I certainly have a fire-like capacity to destroy. Yeah, yeah. And then on Jessica's side, or and maybe any two, her desire to be a helper, her desire, her deep empathy, her capacity to feel and anticipate and know other people's needs has not just been a blessing to me, but I mean, it's blessed hundreds of thousands of people across Iraq and Syria that we get to serve together. But at her most unhealthy place, at many two's most unhealthy place, there can be a sense of like, I am the best helper. I am, Mm -hmm. I am the one who knows best how this helping should be done. And when I'm burning cities to the ground and she's being like, you know, her very righteous yeah. help is not being yeah. appreciated, you know, and <laughs> it, it can be a, a deadly combination for us. Yeah, I believe it. So tell me about like what the day to day looks like for you guys now. Like, what is it you now that you're over there and you've established preemptive love? What is it you, I mean, Jeremy, you know, I know what you do, but I want you to tell my friends what is it y'all spend your time on? What is it you do? Well, these particular conflicts that we have really come of age in. Are dynamic. I mean, every conflict is dynamic. So we find ourselves changing with the changing terrain where we live and where we work. You know, the, the Syrian conflict has been going on seven years now since the start of the so-called Arab Spring in 2011. It's just insane. It, you know, I don't know if you remember reading history books and sitting through history lessons as a kid and going, how did a war last for 20 years? Yes, That's yes. stupid, you know? Yeah. And I mean, now I get it. Like we're in it and I'm like, wow, has it been seven years? Has it yeah. been 15 years since the U.S. invaded Iraq and overthrew Saddam Hussein? 15 years and we are officially not in war, but but also we're still very, very much in the the twilight of war, the shadow of of that invasion in 2003. Like it just doesn't end neatly all the time and quickly so we do the things that conflict requires us to do i mean sometimes it's a a genocidal slaughter that we have to show up on the scene and help try to care for people who are who are freshly running for their lives they need food water shelter medicine uh, emotional psychosocial kind of support and then depending Depending on what happens next, maybe that genocidal force is going to occupy their village or their entire kind of state for for four years, which was the case in ISIS in Mosul. 
um, they have nowhere to go home to because the genocidal force is now living in their homes, occupying their lands. And so how do you think about making a home away from home? You need a job, you need, you need schools for your kids, you need all that kind of stuff. But, but when you refuse to accept the fact that you are now a displaced person or a refugee or it can affect your ability to, to settle in and remake your life. So each, each community, each little group of people that we end up helping, like they all think about this and relate to this kind of stuff differently. And there's, there's just a million factors that go into kind of deciding what our day-to-day looks like. Some days it is literally dodging bombs and bullets. And some days it's sitting and doing spreadsheets in a nice coffee shop and uh, eating awesome food you know like some days are just like they are in nashville and some days are insanity yeah and y'all are i mean y'all are able to provide medical care and education and clothing i mean you just are you kind of are able to get into the spot and see what they need and and fill the need in a lot of cases you know yes a, a lot of groups rightly compassionately kindly responded during the isis takeover of 2014 it it was all over the news Hearts were stirred and organizations showed up, but some of them were fresh on the scene, just like we were fresh on the scene 10 years prior, and they didn't necessarily know what to do. They had, they had amazing generosity and some money to spend and a desire to help people, but they didn't necessarily have the access that we had. They didn't know the tribal leaders or the religious leaders or the government leaders, and we have consistently found ourselves with access to the front lines that is unparalleled. I mean, I, I can, I feel pretty confident, humbly saying there is not a group you can find in Iraq or Syria consistently doing what we have done in as many places time and time and time again. And I think it's just been the fruit of being in the region for 15 years, 10, 10, 11 I guess we're going on our 12th year in Iraq specifically. We weren't following headlines in this case. Like we were already here and it's just, it's helped us have access to these places that we wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah. Um, Okay. I feel like that gives people a good like baseline to understand what you're doing. Cause then I want to ask you like the real friend questions that I like to ask you when we're sitting next to each other for brunch and (laughs) when we're like at the same things, like, I want you to tell me, Jeremy, what, what do you know about the gospel that I don't know because you live there and I live here? Oh, well, gosh, it's a, such a risky way to frame the question. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm a handful, buddy. You know that. (laughs) I wouldn't dare say I know something that you don't know. I would of course you I'm do. sure I have a different perspective. Yes. Okay. Tell me that. Tell me that if it makes you feel better. Tell it like that. <laughs> um, I think I just have to talk about it in terms of my own transformation. Yeah. I, I came into this with my fists up is how I think about it. I thought I was drastically different after 9-11 than all my friends in Texas who went to sign up for the military. We both wanted to respond to 9-11. We were both hurt. We were both traumatized, both groups of us. Yeah. But I fancied myself as someone who was responding in a more Christ-like way, in a less nationalistic way. I wasn't the kind of guy who would wrap myself in God and guns and go 
retaliate against the ragheads. I was in seminary. I was theologically astute. And my response was what I thought a more appropriate response, a, a less nationalistic response. And I wanted to go address this 9-11 Muslim problem, whatever, in a uniquely Christ-like way. And I didn't take up arms. And I, I moved into the neighborhood, as it were, with Muslims overseas. And I did my best. I did what I knew how to do at that time. It was an honest expression of my worldview. I sat in coffee shops day in and day out. And I tried to talk about Jesus. And I insinuated myself into people's lives. I sort of had a cloak and dagger mentality on the world, this sort of spy, espionage, Jason Bourne for Jesus kind of thing. Yeah, We were taught to have secrets. We were taught to not tell the truth. We were taught to create these cover stories. We were, we were taught to be suspicious of everyone. And so my entire worldview was clouded with suspicion of the other, of the Muslim in my neighborhood. And I, I played the role really well. I talked about Jesus all the time, but I did it in a, in a very defensive, fists up, they're out to get me kind of way. I was at a conference that was all about this topic. And I was surrounded by people who probably, many of whom saw the world the way that I did. And they were talking about the so-called fruit in their lives, fruit of the gospel, the way people were coming to Jesus, whatever. And it wasn't happening for me. And I ended up crying out to God in despair in the middle of this conference. And I was on my face praying to God, why aren't you doing anything through me? That guy? You're using that guy? I, yeah. I speak the language better than that guy does. You're, you're using that family or that team? Like I'm so much better than them. How are you using them and you're not doing any of this through me? And maybe the only time I would say like I heard something in response to my prayers, I, I really feel like I heard this voice that said, because you don't love them, Jeremy. Oh my gosh. Like the Muslims, not the team, these other yeah, teams yeah, and yeah, people yeah, like, yeah. it was like, you, you love being right. You love arguing. You love fighting with people. You love this idea that even when the Muslims reject you, somehow you still think you win in that whole scenario because you get to go back and tell your whole newsletter update people about the stiff necked, hard headed Muslims. Like it yeah. all becomes about you at the end of the day, oh, wow. but you don't love Muhammad sitting across from you drinking a cup of tea for who he is, full stop. You love Muhammad, the guy that maybe you could make a Christian, but you don't love Muhammad. And it was just an extremely profound moment for me. I, I actually saw myself in my mind's eye arguing with God, like screaming out, why aren't you doing anything through me? Why, why, why? And it was all an argument. And I literally had my fists up in the air screaming and arguing and fighting and punching with God. And in the moment that that voice came, that word came and said, because you don't love them, I saw myself lower my fists and open up my arms wide to embrace. And I was still on my face in the real world at that conference, face down yeah. on the carpet praying. Yeah. But, but in my heart, I went from this like fists up fighting person to arms open wide, open, embracing person. And when I stood up from that prayer in the real world, I was completely instantaneously 
changed. There was no sanctification on this particular point. There was no journey. There was, I stood up completely unwilling to scream and fight and argue about theology and things like that in the way that I had ever again. You just were changed right away. Completely changed. And that's marked my entire life going forward. I I was a fists up fighter for Jesus. And I think I've just come to realize that it's just not as narrow as I thought it was. Mm. I think that's the punchline. It's yeah. just as rigid and narrow and okay, yeah, the the gate is narrow and few who find it. That's that's not that's not what I was about. That's not what I was doing. I was doing something different from that. Right. It was about me. It was about my ego. It was I don't know, it was something different and that is what that's how I've changed and it's I think it's taught me a lot. I would say that could have happened to you. That story God was writing was way more about who he wanted you to be and not the work he wanted you to do. Oh, for sure. And that's, I think that's paved the way for everything. That that was the instrumental moment for everything that whatever came next, I think yeah. comes out of that fundamental change. Yeah. I mean, we had Bob uh, Goff on the show a few weeks ago. And when he was talking about loving everybody always, I mean, he says it so simply. He's like, no, it's just everybody. Like, you just love. And I feel like you are one of my friends who models that more than anyone else, Jeremy, where you just kind of go like, yeah, we don't we don't ask all these nine questions you think you have to ask. We just love our neighbor, right? So, it, I mean, I feel like that's what preemptive love, I mean, it's in the name, but I feel like that's what preemptive love does so well because that's what you and Jessica do so well. Well, I appreciate that. And I guess I just share that story to say it, it wasn't always that way. yeah. How long ago was that? When was that shift? Maybe 13 years ago. Wow. And so then for 13 years, it's just been about like, what does it look like to love these people? Yeah. And maybe what does it look like to love? Period. Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. one of the things that shifted was a bit of the sense that there are these people and those people and, and my people and your people. I mean, of course, I still... I still recognize difference. I still believe in distinctives. I, I still, I'm not saying, oh, I don't see color. We're all the same. I, <laughs> I think that all those things matter, but they matter now for me in a way that is connected to a more fundamental belief that we really do belong to each other. Like we, we truly are connected and the things that we have in common, I think it's, it's a shift in where I put the accent I, mm-hmm. I used to put the accent on how we were different. I mean, I was surrounded by Muslims who wanted nothing more than to connect with me. Yeah. And they would say, oh, hello, you're American, welcome. And I would turn your American into, whoa, 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 don't try to make me an American. I'm, mm. I'm, a, I'm a particular kind of American. I'm not like those other Americans. Or. Yeah. Actually, I don't really identify as an American. I want you to recognize me as a follower of Jesus, you know. Mm-hmm. Or, or they would say, "Oh, you're you're a Christian. We are the same, same." And I would be like, "Well, I'm not a Christian the way you think of Christian. I'm I'm an enlightened follower of Jesus." You know, I, I could turn right. everything into a fight, and and nothing that they would try to say to demonstrate hospitality and likeness and common ground was ever good enough for me. Mm. And I was that way with my Christian friends too. Everything had to be a one-upmanship, next level, let me split hairs and parse words. And, you know, and I just carried that with me everywhere I went. And 
I think mine has been a, a story of trying to change where I put the accent yeah, and learning to focus more on what we have in common long before trying to parse and split hairs about how we're different. Yeah. Tell me what you would say to people who feel more fear towards Muslims than anything else. I would just start by saying how many people from X group do you know? <laughs> right, right. Whatever the group is. And and frankly, it's this isn't an American problem. This isn't a Christian problem. This is this is the problem that oh, I see yep. everywhere I go. I mean, I'm in Syria right now, and in Syria, it's a question of Alawites or Sunni or Shia or Russian or Hezbollah or whatever in Iraq. It's it's many of the same categories in America. The categories are different, but oh, that's so interesting. It's still fundamentally a problem of once I can put a label on you and your group of people and form a bit of a stereotype about who I think you are, then it it becomes easier to just relate to you by way of stereotype and not relate to you as an individual. So I would just say how many how many Muslims do you know? And usually from there, you know, you start to you start to get a pretty good sense for where someone's coming from. And if you're if you're someone who is predominated by fear of the other, there's a pretty good chance that you either know nobody from the group yep. or maybe worse you've had one or two really bad experiences mm-hmm. that and those are the entirety of the people that you know and so they become a representative for an entire group mm-hmm. and the fact that you experienced something even further entrenches you in that idea because i can't tell you that you don't know anybody you can retort with i do know somebody and look what they did to me or for their sure. people did to me yeah 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 the the challenge there becomes, well, how can you wade back into the fray after having had such a traumatic individual experience? Can you dare let someone from that group into your life again and again and again and again until you have more positive experiences that outweigh the negative? I mean, I feel like a lot of people could say that with the church or with dating or with where they go to restaurants, yep. right? Yep. And again, it's just a matter of stopping taking small sample sizes, huh? Mm, That's good. I like that. Does a friend of yours come to mind, someone come to mind, a story about someone that really kind of started changing your mind or really helped you have a brand new experience of like, oh, I always thought it was going to be like this and this friend has made me think so differently. Oh, yeah, for sure. My friend Sheikh Ali would be the, the epitome of that for me. I was sitting in a hotel in Iraq uh, drinking a cup of tea. I had my notebook out, a dictionary, and I was just studying words in a, in a hotel lobby. And I was just trying to kind of brush up on my language. I'd only been in the country a couple months and, um, it was cold. It was winter. And these double doors from the conference hall open up in the hotel lobby and out comes pouring this like just sea of Muslim clerics mm-hmm. and they're making a beeline straight toward me. So I had, I had been relatively acclimated to Muslims in general, just your average run of the mill on the street Muslim. But here's a bunch of like Sunni Muslim clerics. Like these are the guys who are supposed to be with Al Qaeda, with ISIS. Like these are the bad guys in my book. Yeah, They've got the beards, they've got the turbans, they've got the flowy man dresses. These are like, these are the guys that you see 
on the videos and preaching in the mosque. Like they're the preachers. They're the preachers of hate. Mm -hmm. That was mm -hmm. probably my, my category for right. them. And they're coming right at me. And I, I'm cornered. Like there's no egress for me. There's no way out. And I start like gathering up my stuff as these guys are like literally just pouring in around me on these couches and they're just looking for a place to sit. And I'm trying to pack my stuff and get out of there because I was like genuinely freaked out. Yeah. And this guy with his beard and his flowy man dress and his turban is like, no, 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 Habibi, sit down. Habibi is like my beloved sweetheart. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, just sit down. We we can sit here with you. Like we don't need to drive you away from your your place. And I was like I was stuck. Like he was being nice, and to, but I didn't really want to be there. And yeah. I, he like he grabs me by the arm and kind of like sits me back down to say, "You're welcome here. This was your place before it was our place." And we end up having a conversation in his broken English, and it turned into like a hour and a half uh, talk session. And the other cleric beside me tells me about how his wife was just killed in a a a suicide bombing accident or something like that. And this other guy has seen people die and they're telling me what it's like to lead congregations of, you know, congregants in their religion through this war and through the suffering that they're going through. And I think near the end, they asked me to pray for them. And so right there in the hotel lobby, we sort of held our hands open faced to the sky. And I just invoked a prayer to God uh, on their behalf for peace and for their communities and for the kids that they serve and represent. And, uh, I prayed for, you know, a minute or two and the black bearded dude to my right looks at me after the prayer and he goes, thank you. But I just have to tell you one thing. You forgot to pray for me to have a new wife and <laughs> everyone just like busted up laughing. Like yeah. it was the, the most hilarious thing. Yeah. And it, I don't know, it was just this weird like moment of levity, men jokes being the same men jokes in every culture and stuff like that. And it, it just set us off on a, an amazing relationship. So yeah. Sheikh Ali, he's a sheikh in the sense of like a, a Muslim cleric. Uh, we've been friends now for 13 years, 12 years, something like that. And uh, we've traveled the world together. We've We've hosted conferences together and um it's just been a, a really amazing relationship where he undid my stereotypes of what mm -hmm. it means to be a sunni muslim religious mosque leader and uh he would he would be the first to say and has said it publicly on many occasions to muslims and christians alike that that i have radically transformed his impression of what it means to be an american of what it means to be uh, a christian of yeah of you know those various categories that we held each other in. Right. What does he think of the work you do? He he loves it. I mean, he's he feels like he's told me and told others that we're the most faithful, long-standing group of foreigners that he's ever seen come in and out of his life in in Iraq. Uh, he's met some other people along the way. He's certainly seen people come and go, but um, you know, the fact that we've been able to be doing this together for some twelve years has has meant a lot to him. Yeah. What have you learned about perseverance in this? Because that's something I work on a lot in my life, but my life doesn't require it like the work you're doing requires it. What's the reason y'all stick around and stay longer than most other groups do? It's a, it's a solid question that I always have a hard time answering because it seems to beg for something 
more complex or more profound than I know how to answer. But mm. I think as best I can tell, for me, it's as simple as, for us, it's as simple as we are focused on other people. Mm. There is a myopic way to live that will get you so focused on your own costs, your own sacrifices, your own goals, your own, however you want to frame it up, that perseverance is a, is a fundamentally me-oriented way to look at the world. I must persevere. Oh, wow. I must endure this thing that I am going through. Ouch, Jeremy. Ouch, you're right. <laughs> and when you reorient your entire life to be about other people's success, other people's well-being, other people's survival, other people's endurance and flourishing. It's a shift in posture. It's a shift in orientation. But it, for us, it has largely taken the idea of perseverance out of the equation because yeah. it because what choice do you have? Yeah, I mean, it, it's easier to see it that way. What choice do we have except to keep going for yeah. their sake? It's not that we don't have self-pitying days. It's not that we don't have real trauma. All that stuff is real and true. But at a macro level and, and often day to day, we are focused on others. Yeah, I will be thinking about that for a long time because I, I, I can see a change in my community when I will choose perseverance. Like I can see a change. I think it leaks onto other people when you stop quitting, but I think it's a whole nother thing when you are thinking about your community as the reason you do whatever you do versus just thinking about yourself. Mm. So I like it. Well done. Um, Hey, will you talk a little bit about Jessica's soaps? I love that. Yeah. So one of the things that we started trying to do to engage in the early days of the Syrian conflict was how can we help people from Syria and then Aleppo in particular became kind of a focus for us who are who are fleeing this conflict who are fleeing the war who are moving to places like Turkey and Iraq in search of safety and Aleppo is one of the most historic places in the world for making soap they they export soap all over the region. It's what is broadly known as a Castile-style soap. So it's pure olive oil and laurel oil-based. And they make it in this amazing, like, it's amazingly old-school mass production kind of way. And it's just a very fascinating thing. We bought Aleppo soap in Iraq for years prior to the conflict. And... As the Aleppo conflict grew and more and more parts of the city came under violence uh, from one side or the other, more and more people started running for their lives. And these soap factories got bombed out and the soap makers left and exports of Aleppo soap ended up just drying up over time. And so with these people on, their, on the run for their lives, we were in Iraq, which was one of the main places they were running to early on. And we thought, well, what if we could help some of these Syrian soap makers start a factory, start up their soap businesses again. They've got all the expertise. We've got money that we could help them get started again. And, you know, we get them back on their own two feet. It's a way we can help a refugee. But we failed to ever find a Syrian soap maker, one of these expert people who knew how to do it. Oh, wow. And so it was a germ of an idea, but we were unable to actually 
sync up with an actual bona fide expert who could just get the work going. Mm -hmm. And so the idea kind of morphed from rather than meet an expert, maybe we just have to develop the expertise ourselves. And so Jessica just started studying with some friends more and more. How do you make olive oil soap? What does it require? What are the various ways to do it? And around that time, the conflict had kind of grown and metastasized further and further into Iraq. And some of our own neighbors were being driven out of their homes as the violence was visited on them. Right. And these sort of ideas and these moments collided when Jessica had in her hands the expertise now and the opportunity to help new people start these soap making businesses. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it, it started with a group of people who had been particularly very acutely targeted by ISIS for their faith, for their religion. Uh, their girls had been kidnapped in mosques. Their, their men had been slaughtered. And we ended up meeting just a lot of these people who were on the run for their lives. We initially provided them food and water and clothes and shelter and those emergency things. But it became clear their lands are occupied. They are not going home anytime soon. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to be able to just keep giving them handouts month after month after month. Right. So Jessica went one day to these women who had become friends to her. And she had said, essentially, look, I, I can't provide you with powdered milk for your kids like you want anymore. I can't provide you with food packs anymore. Uh, I'm kind of cutting off the dole, you know, like you're uh -huh. off the dole. Uh, but what I can do is I can help you start a business. And then you can earn money for yourself and you can start providing for your own kids' well-being and you can buy the food and you can put them back in school. But in the trauma of what these women had lived through and the pain of it all, they were just mentally and morally destroyed. Mm -hmm. And they didn't want to start businesses. They, they were in the dumps. You know, They wanted someone to just keep showing up every day and handing them what they needed. But Jessica, I think one of the benefits of, of not being the traumatized yourself is that you can have vision beyond the people that you're helping. And if you, if you wield it humbly, it can end up being a very beautiful kind of partnership. And so yeah. she just kept gently and kindly and humbly wooing them out of their trauma and trying to call them up to a kind of a higher plane than mm -hmm. the one that they were trapped in at that moment. And, yeah. and so she just said, look, I... I understand that you don't want a soap business. Uh, you you don't want to start a business, but I I know how to make this soap, you know, and I will I'll teach you how to do it. I actually I think some of them. I think the conversation might have even started a little before that. She said, "Well, what businesses do you know how to do? What did you do before?" And a lot of them hadn't hadn't done any businesses. They didn't oh, wow. sort of fancy themselves as having any skills. They were housewives. They were moms. That was about the extent of it. As they understood themselves and mm -hmm. saw themselves. Mm -hmm. And someone, someone piped up and said, well, our grandmothers used to make soap or something like that. Maybe that's something that we could pick up again, but we don't know how to do it ourselves. Yeah. And, and then Jessica had the skills and it sort of just tapped into this ancient historic thing that yeah. this, this little group of people who was losing their heritage and losing their culture to genocide it was kind of this beautiful moment of like reconnecting to the elders and the past. And so Jessica taught them how to like recapture this ancient art of soap making that their grandparents used to, used to do. And Jessica ended up calling it sisterhood soap. And these bunch of women started making soap together. And um, 
started selling it and started making money for themselves. Yeah. And they started, you know, putting their kids back in school and putting food on the table. And it's just been a phenomenal turnaround for this community, watching them come from death to life after death it has taught me yeah. more about the, the belief in, you know, resurrection and what it means and what is possible uh, than, than maybe any of the theological arguments that I'd ever heard up until that point. <laughs> right. And the products are awesome. Like, I love my candles that I have from Sisterhood. So it's like they're also making stuff that is, it's not second tier kind of quality stuff. It's like really good candles and, you know, soaps and a Christmas ornament and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It is It is some really top shelf stuff. I mean, the soap is 100% pure uh, olive oil soap. There's nothing added that's like fake or nasty chemical yeah. that's going to hurt your skin, you know. And, and when you're vulnerable, when you're living in a shipping container or a bombed out building or, you know, you've got scabies and skin diseases going through the camps and you're malnourished. I mean, truly, one of the last things you need on top of that is a bunch of cheap chemical, you know, just the lowest quality products that some aid organization is going to dump in your lap and say, well, you're poor anyway. Like, you know, you'll make do. Right. These women have like really valued the ability to make for themselves something that, that doesn't harm their skin, that doesn't yeah. set them back further, that doesn't send them to the doctor and, you know, make their skin more susceptible to, the cracks and bleeding and disease and infection and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's been really cool to see them take pride, not only in the product that they make to sell and export, but, but what it means to them to be able to wash their own kids and wash their own face with quality product. It's, yeah. it's been a really cool two sides of that coin. Yeah, man, I love it. A couple of months ago, we did a survey of everybody who listens to the podcast and we had them request guests and like a thousand people requested you. And I was like, okay, everybody settle down. I've got it. He's already scheduled. Just be cool. But the other thing that people said a lot was that they want to hear more about like what they can do. Like we kept getting comments about like nonprofits and partnering and, and they just wanted to be exposed to more ways to help around the world. So what does it look like to partner with preemptive love? Like for people that this is like lighting a fire in them, what do we do next? The hands down best thing, unequivocal, highest impact thing that anyone can do is sign up to be a monthly sponsor okay. for any amount. Okay. Um, I would rather have someone who's thinking about giving $10,000 gift right now, break it up into 12 really? gifts and sign up to be a monthly donor instead. Because the thing that all of our millions of friends here who we reach each year are most at risk of is people forgetting about them just because the headline news has moved on. And we are a flighty planet of people who want to bounce around from one conflict to the next without ever really committing to go long and hard with a group of people whose lives we helped break collectively. Yeah. It's it's my theology that created that contributed to this situation that we're in today. It's it's my politics that created or contributed to part of these situations that we're in today. And to not reckon with that, I think is a, a great tragedy. So 
So a monthly sponsorship from a dollar to a thousand dollars a month, what it does is it lets us gain some visibility and make 12 month plans and 24 month plans and say, we've got a quarter million dollars every month coming in right now. Therefore we can commit to these 10 projects that are going to rebuild this city. We can have cash in the bank building up. We can deplete that money one month and be assured that it's going to come back next month. And so when chemical bombs fall in this location, I can have trucks on the road on the way out to help people before your side of the planet even wakes up, before we're issuing calls for money, before we're writing newsletters. I can be assured the money's going to be there because every single day of the week, we've got new monthly donors whose credit card gets charged. And I, I can know what today's haul is going to be. Yeah. And so I can spend that money before people even wake up. Yeah. And the security and the stability of having you as a monthly donor, Annie, is is amazing. I can't tell you the impact that that makes. And, and what we all add up to at $5 a month or $500 a month is a whole lot of change in the world. Yeah. And the, I think from my side as a donor, what I have loved is... I see it on my debit card every month. And so I don't forget. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not even like a money. It's not even that I don't forget to support you. It's that I see it and think, I should check in on Jeremy and Jessica. Like, I wonder how they're, or when we get the newsletters or, you know, like, I love that side too. That's that's one of the reasons I'm way better actually at monthly when I can just set it and let it draft. And then I see it and go, oh yeah, I wonder what's going on. Oh, I haven't read the newsletter or whatever, you know, so... I'm with you on that. So a monthly, and, and it's preemptivelove.com. Is that right? Preemptivelove.org is the best place. And we call, we call, our, monthly, we call our monthly program the front line. And uh, one of the things that we're just trying to instill into each other, all of us together around the world, is that really these conflicts are never about bombs and bullets. All these conflicts start in our own hearts before they ever make it to our hands. And... We have called our monthly community the front line because we all want to remember that the front lines are where we live. It's not just Aleppo and Fallujah and Mosul, but it's Nashville and it's Boston and it's Baltimore and it's Chicago. And if we don't live this stuff out, this preemptive love way of life out where we live, there's there's no hope. There's no amount of money that can go on our credit card that's going to solve this stuff. It's It's us. We have to change. Yeah, that's right. Okay, good. So that's what we'll do. We'll just get our friends to join me in being a um, frontliner. I like that. I like being on the front lines with you, Jeremy. You are. You are. Bless I you. I believe it. Well, um, okay. So here's the last question we always ask people. And this, I can't wait to hear your answer. Because the show's called That Sounds Fun. The last thing we always want to ask people is, what do you do for fun? So like when you're with the family, a normal day in Iraq, what does it look like that you do for fun? Well, daughter Emma is 12, going on 13. My son Micah is almost 11. And uh, yeah, it can be as simple as the new Avengers movie, whatever that's going to be this quarter. Right. um, We did a whole episode about superheroes, Jeremy, because I just fell in love with them. It's all very new to me. Yeah, it's a passion of the kids, for sure. They are very much into the kind of Hunger Games, Uh youth action hero, post-apocalyptic, and, you know, save the world kind of dynamic. So they love those books. They love those conversations. We get into deep, deep, heady, geopolitical, theological 
technical conversations at 13 and 11 about about all the things yeah. and that's pretty fun that, that's that's truly probably one of my most cherished things that I get to do on any given day or week is talk geopolitics and humanity and sociology and economics with the kids. Okay. That sounds fun to me too. I, I, I think that's a good answer. Um, Hey, thanks for doing this and making time for us. I'm really, really grateful. I'm grateful for you. Thanks for all the joy and happiness you bring into our life and into the world. Oh, friends, don't you just love him? He's just so smart. He's such an Enneagram 8. I know. He's such an 8, and I love him for it. I think um, some of my favorite people are the people who know their Enneagram type. Well, of course, I want you to know your Enneagram type. But know their Enneagram type and know what their health and unhealth looks like and really pursue health in it. And so I just respect that about him so much. I would imagine you, like me, your brain might be just a little bit spinning after a conversation like that and listening to how Jeremy spends his life. I... Um, and Jessica, his wife. I don't know that I'll forget what he said about perseverance. That was so interesting to me. Hey, I'd love for you to join me on the front lines like he talked about. Join me as a monthly donor for Preemptive Love. You just go to preemptivelove.org and that is where you can get any of those products we talked about, the Sisterhood Collective products. You can get those there. You can sign up to be a monthly donor. All the things are there at preemptivelove.org. And so I would really encourage you. This is, I mean, I don't know that we've, done this before where I said like, Hey, listen, this is where you can't, I'm sure we have, but I, it's not come to my mind, but you can trust me when I tell you that Jeremy Courtney and preemptive love, they're doing it right. And they're doing it well. And they are, um, where I can't be on the ground or I haven't chosen to be on the ground there. I can help them. And so I am, and I hope you will join me preemptivelove.org and make sure you give Jeremy a follow on Instagram, Twitter. He's really, I mean, He's, as you already have experienced, he's very, very smart. Um, but he is Jay Court on Twitter. You can give him a follow there and just learn. He does a great job of not only sharing kind of what they are doing, but giving me a perspective of what is going on in the Middle East that you can't get anywhere else. So make sure you follow him over there. Hey, and if you need to find me out, as you know, I'm embarrassingly easy to find Annie F as in fancy, Annie F Downs, front lines. That's what the F is for this week. One of the people on the front lines, Annie F Downs, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. And if you have a friend who would love this episode, someone that you know cares about the Middle East or has a Muslim friends that they want to share this with, anybody who you think would enjoy this conversation, go ahead and just send it over to them. That'd be really fun. And you can always rate and review the show. It helps so much to have reviews down there. So thank y'all so much for doing that. It means a lot. Y'all are the best. Hey, go out there and do something that sounds fun to you today. I am going to go to the pool with some friends and their kids. That is my afternoon plan. That's my favorite thing about working in the summer As we finish about an hour earlier than we do the rest of the year and I get to head out and play. So I'm going to go play with my friends. I hope you all will do the same. And today, I think when I am doing that, I will be really grateful for where I live and the freedom that I have and the health that I have and the lack of war that exists in my town. And I will be grateful for Jeremy and Jessica and what they do and the way they have given their lives to Jesus in a way that has them giving their lives to war-torn portions of our globe. And I'm just really thankful for them. So to Jeremy and Courtney, three cheers for being some of the um, best people that I get to know. So y'all have a great day and we will see you Monday. Monday.